Dr. Dr. Schultz, welcome back to the conversation, talking about the fellowship of his sufferings, which is that we as the Lord's people are are near Jesus or Jesus is near us, particularly in the difficulties and the, and the real suffering of this life. And, and your thesis, well, your multifaceted thesis, but that the church has embraced a, can I say it this way? A pagan way of thinking about suffering as if suffering is something strange and not something part of our lives here below. We've, We've failed to address it in a helpful way. We've embraced the world's thinking regarding suffering, and that's led to all sorts of trouble, including um, the ethics of a death on demand, which is to say that to escape suffering, to destroy, to end suffering, we end the sufferer. And you've written this, the fellowship of his sufferings, as a as an encouragement, and in fact, as a handbook for Christians to 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 look and think of suffering in biblical terms and rightly according to the scriptures. Is that a good summary to catch us up so far? I mean, we've talked a lot about a lot of things, but. <laughs> yes, that's because you're a very interesting interviewer with lots of things to ask. Thanks so much. Um, well, right, brothers. So the first two chapters of the fellowship of his sufferings uh, began by first addressing what is a, um, to think about a cultural shift. So I've, I've referred to death on demand as a cultural insurgency, among other things. But in the second chapter, the one just before the chapter we're looking at today, um, I explained that the church has suffered severe mission drift since the time of the Reformation, in that we have not been teaching people how to suffer. So we haven't been pe teaching people how to suffer and die and participate, therefore, in Christ's resurrection. And the, the watchword, the title phrase uh, for this um, little offering on that topic is from Philippians 3, where St. Paul, right after talking about uh, forensic or announced universal justification, talks about how he counts everything loss um, so that he may participate, quote, in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and thereby attain the resurrection. So I, I do blame um, our cultural insurgency all around us in secular culture, at least in part on our church failure uh, as pastors, as church members, as universities and seminaries uh, to teach people how to suffer and die. Uh, a a um, indictment, by the way, which is, I think, all the more poignant um, in these days when it seems that uh, every item on the news and on the internet remains about trying to prevent death from a particular virus strain or um, says absolutely nothing about suffering except that people should uh, be allowed to die if they're suffering. It's amazing. I, I read this. You'll like this. I read this Luther quote uh, that someone sent me uh, and he's talking about the enemy. He says the enemies threaten us with death. <laughs> and he says, if they really understood, uh, in fact, Luther says, if they were as wise as they were foolish, they would threaten us with life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but because the Christian is not, I mean, you know, what, what has Jesus done? He, he's suffered for us. And in that he's shown us that we also can suffer and also die. And he's rescued from us from the real danger, which is eternal death and the judgment of God's wrath on the sinners deserve. And so what is there to be afraid of? Right. Well, and, and of course, 
there's also that question if we go back to the to Luther's comment about life um we lay claim on life too uh, life yeah. understood in Jesus the Zoe that's right right so I think we want to say that these folks for instance in mainstream bioethics who presume to advise the rest of us on life and death and quality of life and awful term and everything in between um, they are seriously incompetent not knowing either what what comes after death uh, not understanding what life is it's actually christ and not understanding uh, even what suffering is conflating that with pain all the time that's amazing. Yeah, that's we got to pick about uh, apart all of those things. I want to dig into it uh, to start with the story of, that's called the pre-persons. This is a 1974 short st- story by Philip Dix. I was I never had heard of that before, but I was very intrigued by it. Could you tell the story and then and pull a few points out of it? And and I'd love to also to k- see if you saw s- similar things happening in that story with the recent argument on the Mississippi abortion law, the Supreme Court. Yeah, thanks. Um, so what the way I'm using uh, this particular story is as what we call in philosophy, a thought experiment. Um, just to kid a little bit, a little bit in philosophy, we don't put people or our kids in boxes to prove how to do behaviorism. And we don't hook people up to electrodes uh, we don't conduct experiments on poor defenseless little frogs or anything else. We do thought experiments, um, which is to say, try to come up with a story. They're usually not very well done, but to come up with a story that will allow for a focus with few distractions on the issue at hand so you can flesh it out and, and talk about it. Um, now, <clears throat> the particular story that, that you're giving me a chance to talk about, thanks, is uh, from Philip K. Dick. Now, Philip K. Dick is a fairly well-known science fiction writer of a certain generation. I'm afraid that would probably be my generation, um, who was writing in the 60s, 70s, and and right about in there. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and say I really like reading him, but it's not because he's a great writer. I don't think he is. It's because he's a great idea person, and I think he certainly is. So um, a number of your viewers without my doing a um, Siskel and Ebert show with you here today, I think a number of your viewers will recognize that there are quite a number of movies that have been around that are based on Philip K. Dick short stories or novels, for instance, Blade Runner, Minority Report, um, and so forth, uh, Total Recall. So uh, this is an early story by um, Philip K. Dick. And rather than to give you my summary, which always goes longer than it should, as my students will tell you, I'm just gonna read the way I tried to tell this briefly in uh, The Fellowship of His Sufferings. So I'm I'm just going to say to uh, alert us all to what we're watching for, the kind of the nugget in here is that, (laughs) is that uh, Philip K. Dick, and there it is, is saying that, um, is showing that abortion, if and when it's defended, is defended on wholly arbitrary grounds. And then the arbitrary logic of abortion, which I've I've been calling in my teaching for some time, um, the PPL or personal property list um, way of doing things. Um, so anyhow, here's the digest. The protagonist, Walter, is a 12-year-old boy who is deathly afraid of a certain government truck 
that often rumbles into his neighborhood. It has just driven through again, leaving Walter dreadfully distressed. He has made his way home to his mother, Cynthia Best. His mom interrogates young Walter and learns that he was terrified that the abortion truck had come into his neighborhood in order to pick him up, figuring that his mom and dad had decided they didn't want him. Cynthia first asks him about this, holding his hand, but then becomes increasingly exasperated with what she regards as her son's obvious foolishness. Telling him to listen carefully, his mother explains that she and his dad would never send him to the county facility to be aborted. Anyhow, she explains more or less impatiently, you're too old. They only take children up to 12. But Walter is still afraid that he could be sent to the facility to have the air sucked out of his lungs because that very thing had happened to his friend, Jeff Vogel. So his mother reasons with him. Her reasoning? The courts have decided that children 12 and older cannot be aborted because they have souls. The decision that they have souls is that at age 12, children can do calculus. Therefore, they have souls. It also turns out that the age at which the government has determined that children have souls and therefore cannot be aborted has recently been altered. When Walter responds that he doesn't feel like he has a soul, his mother replies in a perfunctory manner, it's a legal matter, strictly according to age, and you're past age. Now, the background for the story, as Philip K. Dix himself says, and uh, by the way, any PKD fans out there can find on their favorite PKD fan site. Uh, he mentions that uh, he had never gotten so much mail. This was back before emails. Never gotten so much mail and so much hate mail for anything he had ever written or said in his entire life. Um, and if you think about the date for a moment, he's writing this right after the Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion, um, at least in the first trimester. Um, and also, um, Blackman's majority opinion was filled with this kind of arbitrary nonsense, um, you know, that certain things should be determined because we really don't know. My goodness. So anyhow, as I say, you can think about this as the P property listing. So I offer a, an example. Uh, I'm afraid it's a real life example of this on the next page from what you had up a moment ago. So these would be sample properties that identify an individual as a person. Um, this is actually from um, some of the stuff that Peter Singer at Princeton had been putting up. Um, first of all, uh, there's a, you got to kind of envision two lines here. There's a line in which you put the people who are going to count as persons. And then there's a line in which you're going to put the people who don't count or are not a person. So some of the properties that whoever sorting is going to look for would include consciousness, capacity for physical, social, and mental interaction with other beings, having conscious preferences for continued life, and having enjoyable experiences. Now, the point is that that list, which is itself arbitrary, that means it's made up, or what a lawyer, I think, would call arbitrary and capricious. It's made up, and there's no care, really, that's going into this anyhow. This is the way you bring an individual forward, and according to um, Singer, anyhow, if that person doesn't display consciousness or, or have uh, conscious preferences, they would be not a person. So you could kill that kind of person. Um, this, as I 
point out a couple times too often during the semester um, would actually mean that if a student ever dared to fall asleep in one of my classes, um, I think we would be justified in killing him, right? At least according to Peter Singer. So they should give me better course evaluations than they would Professor Singer if they had him for class, I would think. Um, so anyhow, the, the point is this is arbitrary. Also, it's eerily familiar. This is exactly the sort of things that the Nazis were doing in the death camps to our Jewish neighbors um, during the Holocaust. So the same method that's, that was used in the Holocaust, this is called preference utilitarianism. Um, an arbitrary list, arbitrarily applied to people who either do or do not right at that moment exhibit certain characteristics. Um, this is what Philip K. Dick is bringing to light in that pretty much unforgettable story about the pre persons can you did you listen to the um to the mississippi abortion case that that conversation at all or pay attention can you see a reflection in the arguments that were being made against the um mississippi law well um i did listen some i was especially interested in the first few days of the um questioning that went on to kind of see what the supreme court justices were going to ask about which i understand i'm no lawyer of course but which I understand is a way you can kind of gauge the way the Supreme Court may be heading with their deliberations. Uh, but um, I'm going to say with this, I didn't hear, and I didn't hear the whole thing, but I didn't hear any serious discussion even reaching this low mark. So what I, what I noticed, what I noticed today in teaching bioethics these days is there actually is no scientific where to hide either on this. So even if you don't have a very full understanding of human life, and even if, um, you're kind of taken in with this notion that uh, a being can be judged on the basis of a quick snapshot rather than their entire ex entire existence. Um, it remains the case that you can you are you know your visitors can sorry your listeners and viewers can just go online and uh, put in when does human life begin and include the word embryology, and you'll likely run across a number of fine articles by embryologists. Those would be their their scientific um, expertise is in unborn, right? Unborn kinds of, of beings, human beings included. Uh, they just say there never was any doubt. It's also um, rather telling, by the way, Brian, that in the bioethics, bioethics commissions that reported to Congress here and there and that various presidents had appointed, um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been an embryologist included on those boards. So the very, the very specialty, if you will, that would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that human beings in utero are of course human beings, just wait till they're born and you can see that. Um, and they could talk about the DNA and, and so forth to boot. Um, they've known this all along. It's just been repressed. Mm. I, I want to, so we've talked before, I think the next step is something that we've covered before in these conversations. So I might just make a couple steps quickly, but maybe by way of highlighting or reminding us of a few things. But so, so this question of, we reach now an objection, which is, well, ethics ought to be done scientifically. And you take that objection straight on with both Hume and Wittgenstein, first with Hume and his is-ought conundrum, and then with Wittgenstein's Tractatus, which kind of lives. So we've, we've talked about both before, but maybe by way of reminder, um, Hume has this idea that science, if done rightly, 
is talking about what is, and that is very different than what ought, like what ought to be done. So I can recognize what is, but that doesn't immediately tell me what ought to be done because purpose is obscured and meaning is missing from scientific inquiry done rightly. Do, do I get that right? I think so. So uh, David Hume is an 18th century Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, and um, I don't usually um, make my undergrads memorize birth and death dates of major Western thinkers, but his is an easy death date. He died in 1776, so um, we and our your listeners can peg him pretty well. Now, the thing is that David Hume says this. This is pretty close to a, a direct quote. He says, um, I am I am reading along in a, in a, an important piece of writing, and I'm I'm reading with the the usual locutions of is is not is is not. When all of a sudden the author says ought ought not, whence this confusion? He asks, and um, David Hume, you know, he he is one live wire when he's writing, and I think he's to be appreciated for that. Um, by the way, sometime we should talk about his. Uh, deathbed writing about the importance of scripture. But for hmm. today, hmm. Um, when, he, when he says, you know, there is what later, later lesser thinkers call an is-ought distinction, um, the way that's often taken is simply not intellectually honest or even attentive. So is-is-ought, is-isn't-ought, isn't-ought. You would think, David Hume suggests this, that is would be the verb for science, it is this way or it is not this way. Whereas ought would be something that belongs in ethics. So he's expecting that the writing he's listening to reading should be done in a scientific vein, is, is not, is, is not. And you should not insert notions of ought into a uh, 18th century scientific conversation. Now, that by itself is, is not trustworthy for this reason. It is a fact that the human being operates in terms of our thinking on the basis of ought. This is not, not an add-on. This is the way we do it. When we do math, unless you know, you're doing it in Oregon right now, um, you know that you ought to come up with the correct answer to two plus two equals four. You ought to have the correct answer. When you're figuring out pi to 27 digits or whatever, it needs to be a certain sequence of numbers after that. And, you know, it's, it's got, it ought to be accurate. If you're doing a triangle, it cannot have four sides. It ought to have three sides. Now, we approach things this way all the time, right? Sometimes we use the word should. It's the same thing. Um, you know, should I? step on the gas and get through this light real fast? Or, or should I put on the brakes and, and show better judgment? Right? We do that all the time. So it is the case that thought always expresses an ought character to it. Um, to get rid of that is simply not being scientifically observant about thinking and rationality. Um, so as I say, uh, lesser thinkers after David Hume make a big fuss over this uh, but I don't know that that Hume should be blamed for that. Um, uh, and, and anyhow, however you take it, it is the case that we think in terms of what we ought and ought not to do. So there. The, the this you kind of is built on by Wittgenstein. 
I was, but I wanted to, I want to skip down ahead a, li- a little bit. And so I'll pull up Wittgenstein here um, that uh, the, there, there's a, he talks about how science cannot, there's an indifference in science. Um, oh, I, I'm, 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 and maybe you can help me find it too. In other words, that, um, there is it when it comes to a scientific statement, the idea that one thing is more important than the other is not, um, is not answerable, or it, you, you can't. Every everything that is is according to science as it must be, because it is what it is, and therefore it cannot be better or worse than anything else. There is. Do you, do you know what I'm remembering from this? Um, well, I think I do. I think I do. Um, there are, of course, a couple extremely popular references online that you and I could offer for folks interested in pursuing this. Right. So. For instance, uh, uh, folks could go over to uh, org and look at our very popular series on master metaphors for philosophy. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there we can, you can find a, uh, a way too enjoyable discussion that you and I had about um, Wittgenstein. And then uh, we've, we've done some stuff with this when uh, you were good enough to talk with me about the limitations of science. Um, here on some of your YouTube stuff. So how about if I just put it this way? Um, feel free to put up what you had there for Wittgenstein or not. I've, yeah, I did. I will, I'll pull it back up because I think I found the specific okay. one that I, and, and, I, and I'm not going in good order here, but this, um, this one here, 6.42, where Wittgenstein says, it is impossible for there to be uh, scientific propositions of ethics, scientific propositions can express nothing that is higher. I think that's the one that I'm especially thinking of. And that, that idea, in other words, science can't say this is higher than that, or this is better because it only, everything must be accidental. And if accidental, then, then what can you say of it in regards to better or worse, higher or lower, et cetera. Right. So the fundamental question here is what can you say scientifically And then shouldn't you know enough not to talk about things, not to say things about things that you can't speak of scientifically if the whole process of the whole program is to speak only scientifically about things? So the first, um, and and this is important. Also, this is not universally taught, but I'd be glad to explain and defend this at length, Um, you know, even apart from our popular interview on what does this mean? So, um, the thing is that the first statement says the world is all that is the case. That's proposition one, the opening line of Tractatus. And the last proposition says, whereof one cannot speak thereof, one ought to remain silent. Now, the key to Tractatus and the way I teach it, and I, th- I think this is very defensible, is to say Wittgenstein is not talking about the whole world. He's talking about the world as defined this way the world or the parts of the world that we can understand by the scientific method, the world as the natural sciences can see it. Then the task becomes, what can we say scientifically about things that come up in real life? And the the related question is, are there things that show up in life 
that you can't say anything about scientifically, but you're still going to have to find a way to talk about. And that's where um, this, um, I think, powerful section that you had up a second ago from the Proposition 6 stuff, that's what makes this an especially interesting section of this powerful little book. And that is, Wittgenstein says, remember, what, what you can't speak about scientifically, you should shut up about scientifically. But he keeps on reporting that there are nevertheless features of reality that keep showing up hmm. in life, such as God, the human soul, aesthetics, you know, the beautiful, and ethics. Hmm. He says then, um, I, I included some bracketed references to science to keep people in context for these short bursts. But he says then that you can't, you can't do scientific propositions of ethics, or in other words, you can't speak ethics scientifically because scientific propositions, and this thing's all about statements or propositions, scientific propositions are restricted to the natural world. And ethics, of course, involves something transcendental, which is to say above and beyond what's generally classified as the natural world. Hmm. Is that what he means by mystical? He uses that word mystical right. in there. That's yeah. right. So I, th I think, by the way, we don't want to overdo that word mystical. Um, mystical would, would mean for um, somebody like Wittgenstein in, in a book like this would mean that which is mysteriously beyond the reach of what we can do the way we've set things up, right? Hmm. So there's, there's something that's there. We're just going to have to leave that as a mystical thing because that's not our project right now. So, so okay, so I think this is, um, th this is really helpful. So Hume, Wittgenstein, th those thinkers of the past have said that Ethics cannot be done scientifically, and we would add to that ethics ought not to be done scientifically. Yeah. <laughs> Although science can't say the ought, but anyway, that's and yet that is what is happening now, right? I mean, the so the general realm of of ethics and especially bioethics is understood to be a scientific endeavor nowadays. And the result is death, right? I mean, that's that's all you can get if that's what you're going to do. Yes, I, I want to be um, respectful toward my scientific colleagues, for instance, um, at my Lutheran University. We, we do talk about this, and I, I can appreciate, and I want to mention here that some of them think I, I maybe speak a little too strongly about this, maybe more than a little bit. Um, but I, I don't see how it helps the conversation if we all tiptoe around issues. We should just, you know, put our best, strongest stuff out there, have it well thought out, um, the logic made transparent, and then we can talk about this. So we do. We do talk about this. Now, I love the fact that I can go to science-trained colleagues at my university and ask them questions about the science of things, but I'm going to offer this caution Strictly speaking, when a scientist is speaking as a scientist, you know, talking only sciencely, um, there is no basis for doing ethics. And it's certainly not my colleagues who transgress this for the most part. It's, it's actually people in specialty, kind of new grown specialties like um, evolutionary ethics, 
right? So if you've, if you've already got a narrative that is totally self-enclosed as far and in natural science, and then you're making pronouncements, I do want to say that that, that is just a contradiction in terms that can't be ethics, or rather it's only ethics in the sense that um, one physician I had once for some emergency care, when I asked him, uh, how many ethics classes did you take in med school? And he said, well, he said, I, uh, I, I, I took three hours. And I said, you really think that a three credit class is enough ethics for you to practice medicine on people like me? And he said, no, you don't understand. I had only three hours total of ethics in med school. And it was more than enough because all ethics is for is to tell you what not to do so you don't get sued. Now we're talking about serious stuff here. So ethics has to do with what we ought to do to help, to take care of, to protect and preserve one another. It's an ought discipline, you see? It's a normative discipline. How should we live together as human beings? And then, you know, by the way, we're heading right back there to, I know one of your um, central pastoral concerns uh, about theological or philosophical anthropology. How must we understand the human being based, for instance, on Christ's incarnation? Um, but science can't go there. That's my point. Our, our Christian scientists could go there, but I think that they too would admit that they are stepping beyond the scientific method and they're no longer talking science. They're now talking about biblical revelation, which is a wonderful thing. And nobody should be restrained from teaching that in his or her classes whether they're science classes or not. You, you uh, a couple of conversations ago, you gave me a, a, what has turned out to be a very powerful tool. And that is uh, just in the simple statement that suffering is not self-interpreting. <laughs> and th that, that, that has let me ask that question on everything else. Is that self-interpreting? Is purpose available in the thing itself and is meaning available in the thing itself, or do you have to bring it in there? And this has been just a, a very, very helpful way to think not only about suffering, but about creation, about life, about our humanity, about our own bodies, and so forth. Is there, is there purpose there? And I think we see some purpose in creation, but it's an obscured purpose. Uh, and science might get to that obscured purpose. Like, for example, you look at a dog, and you see that it that the mouth the dog's mouth has the purpose of eating and barking, and the dog's tail has the purpose of indicating its whatever. Or so you can see you can see an you can see somewhat of an obscure purpose in things, but the meaning of these things must be brought from somewhere else. And so, if you have that scientific assumption, the naturalistic scientism that says that science can save us. It imports that purpose in everything. In, in, and so what's the purpose of medicine is to, what, alleviate pain, extend painless life or something like this? But it, it, um, it, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring that purpose itself. What, so, so I'm thinking specifically like about the technological imperative that says that if you can do it, you should do it. This, this, is, kind of, this is kind of an imported meaning and purpose into science and to scientific development that does it. It's not there. It's, it's imported from the outside. 
I don't know if there's a question in there, but may, so I'll take it to a question and, and because you then will give the example, which I thought was very helpful of the article that says, when does a patient, when does a doctor help in the patient's life? Yes. And, and you identify that as begging the question. I want to I, I maybe pull up. I was really stunned by you. It, it, maybe you want to set up the background and then, I, and your, your, um, response to this, here's the two fundamental errors that are being made. I thought was really helpful for me. Um, okay. Are, are you, um, are you thinking that we're leaving that science conversation then, or is this extending that it's extending it a bit? So the, the, um, ethical, th this conclusion, ethical thinking lies beyond scientific abductive and inductive reasoning lies beyond the scientific solving of mirroring scientific problems. And then you bring in this example of um, well, I, let me, I'll just read this sentence and let you, by begging the question, I mean that modern science assumes a worldview, naturalism, without either identifying this as an assumption or defending its worth philosophically. Secondly, we see that the epistemological fundamentalism on which much of bioethics, including the general generation of bioethical dilemmas, depends is at bottom the scientism which Cass warns us about not the circumspect scientific reasoning at all in fact scientific reasoning is the only one way of reasoning reasoning inductively and abductively not a way of reasoning reasoning normatively that is competent for the task of moral reason in the first place because it's not normative thinking and then you bring in the example of this Marcia angel may doctors help you die to sort of, that's right, to demonstrate this begging the question because um, it doesn't get to it. Sure. I, I get it. So uh, let me speak to that a little bit. First, just like I, I tell my first year students, um, I really need to define the terms so everybody knows what it is we're talking about. Um, when I talked about those two kinds of reasoning, abductive and inductive, um, inductive is the kind of reasoning we'd usually associate with scientific reasoning. In fact, I think a lot of us learned that that is scientific reasoning, you know, growing up through grade school and, and so forth. Um, I'd point out that inductive reasoning is reasoning to a high degree of probability. Okay, so that that's the best way to understand it. Abductive reasoning is hardly ever mentioned and more's the pity. So abductive reasoning refers to the generation of hypotheses or worldviews. Now, can we just keep those both kind of in view like you're doing there? Thanks. Um, sure. So the inductive reasoning, let's just say that that is scientific reasoning or scientific reasoning is inductive. Let me just point out the obvious. Um, in science, no matter how big a pile of data you collect, your data, your pile of data will not spontaneously break out in an hypothesis, right? So there's no spontaneous combustion that gives you a hypothesis from looking at a huge or a well-selected pile of data. Data do not do that sort of thing. What actually happens first is that you come at your data. In fact, you, you select or maybe generate the data in the service of what you believe to be the case. Now, what, what I'm saying here is that though we're used to this phrase from the early medieval writers, credo ut intelligam, 
I believe, for the purpose of going on to understand, that pattern is not true only of the things we believe religiously. It's also true of scientific reasoning. So scientific reasoning begins with a belief. You know, the, the world is spherical or something. And then it piles up relevant data to test that out inductively. Okay, so um, the worldview or the hypothesis is generated as part of the human being being a human being. And the inductive reasoning is the more deliberate application to that thesis or hypothesis or worldview to test it out. Um, by the way, we, we actually do that religiously also, don't we? Um, taste and see that the Lord is good. So we start off with the given that God is good because scripture says so. And then God, you know, in, in verses like that really invites us to test that out. Okay. So um, that that's one thing here. I also wanted to mention um, that when I refer to bioethical dilemmas, I'm, I realize I'm getting a little uh, quick or dense with my writing in there. Bioethical dilemmas are mostly not generated by actual life situations, but they're generated by the predominance of bioethics and the dilemmas that that presents for us in real life. Now, my concern throughout this writing, uh, and I appreciate it's a minority concern, is that bioethics is not actually ethics as it's practiced for the most part. It's rather a kind of science that is presuming to make ethical pronouncements. Uh, and this is what leads us to death on demand. Now that brings us to Marshall Engel's situation. So uh, Dr. Engel, who's an MD, um, is a past editor-in-chief for the New England Journal of Medicine. I believe from, from what I had been reading from her, that um, she also went through a very difficult situation with her husband suffering quite a bit and, and ultimately dying. I think it was from some long-lasting cancer. Um, so I think on the, on the uh, compassion side, we understand that she was going through the mill. And I, I mean that sincerely, not just to do a, a quick um, pass by. But it, it's really bizarre that an MD should be one of the leaders to this so-called physician-assisted suicide movement in the United States and worldwide, as Engel has been. And uh, I'll just cut to the chase on here. She clearly feels that if somebody is going through suffering, that they should have the option of ending their lives with the assistance and um, complicity of their physician. In fact, she actually goes so far as to say, if a physician won't offer that, the physician is not being professional and certainly not being human and compassionate. So um, with the way I've been explaining things, what she is actually doing is she is confusing pain, which is the province of medical science. That's the, um, the indicator we have on our physical side, being body and soul creatures that we have on our physical side, that something is wrong, right? Uh, pain. However, when you conflate pain with suffering, and these are two rather different phenomena, when you conflate pain with suffering, all of a sudden, the physician assumes that if suffering is going on, that's nothing but pain. And her job is to alleviate pain. And therefore, and this is a big therefore, therefore, the physician should 
practice medicine by terminating the life of anybody who's suffering. Now, what makes that begging the question? Um, let me first of all say this is a horrible conflict of interest. Why in the world um, we or anybody would put up with an MD lobbying, speaking, endorsing death on demand um, just boggles the mind. But what makes this begging the question is this. I think a lot of us assume that begging the question just means arguing in a circle. Um, it doesn't. That's not at all adequate. Begging the question um, really means to assume and presuppose something and try to skate by on your presupposition. In this case, um, I, th I think it's quite clear that Dr. Engel holds a naturalist, maybe even an eliminative materialist worldview. She thinks that everything is matter and energy, that human life is a matter of biological processes. And she thinks that therefore by ending a human life, you end all those processes and you end that human being. She's not competent to make that determination. I, I notice first of all, that she has missed an entire dimension of the human being by relegating us to nothing but biology in the way she writes about this, even though she's quite eloquent in talking about the difficulty of suffering. And again, I certainly understand that. But it's begging the question because this takes us back about 20 minutes now. Um, as a science-minded person, she is making proclamations on things that you cannot speak about scientifically. And one of those is ethics. The other of those is the human being. Uh, we value doctors and medical people for the way they can address pain. That is their job. That is their vocation. But they are not competent to determine whether the person ceases at biological death. And it is way beyond the pale that people who can't tell the difference between pain and suffering and who reduce the human being to nothing but biology should presume to terminate human beings. That's begging the question. And this is a whopper of an example of it, but it happens all the time. This is really quite incredible. And then, and I think in the next two paragraphs, I mean, this is a very important page and paragraph and the next two are going to be even more important. So I want to look at those two, but just, I don't want to miss this um, connection is that you pointed out that not all suffering and and here we would say, I think, pain, although it's true also of suffering, but not all pain can be adequately relieved. That's that's Engel, by the way, saying that. Yep. yep. And and therefore, th that you, you snuff out in this little quote, a motive, because medical science cannot alleviate this certain pain. And so it comes to the end of its uh, of its helpfulness. So it's, it, it, but it can't admit its own inadequacy. It's the whole thing is if you assume scientism, which science can save you, science will save us. You cannot admit that it can't even save you from this. So, so it has to offer some sort of solution, even though the assumptions are incredible and bold and wrong here. Um, really quite stunning. I th this so th th you're going to highlight this that can we do we we assume that death is the end of a person we assume radicalized autonomy but do you I I wouldn't mind just looking at the words um 
in this next paragraph and, and walking through it. So I might read and then ask for your thoughts. At least since the time of Plato, Western thought has been characterized by an open-mindedness toward our human intuition of personal immortality. So now this is introduced that, that do we extend beyond death? Stoic and Epicurean anomalies to be sure that so and these are probably what we're mostly facing today, but it's kind of maybe take them out. The major current of Judea, uh, Judean Christian thought uh, has been that has formed Western culture entails the conviction that God, one, has made us in his image, and two, has personally redeemed us as immortals. So that th- here, here's our theological anthropology. And this is completely different than than what we are, what an accident resulting from uh, from evolution that we that God is doesn't even exist, much less as a person that salvation is not accomplished by God, but accomplished through science and that we are mortal and death ends us. So at every point, the assumptions of bioethics are challenged by this confession. Credo Christians today, not only official political voices, the Catholic Church, so all Christians, as Angles has it, continue to confess the longstanding convictions in the resurrection of the body in church, in their apologetics at the graveside, within the framework of human as immortal, and not on a loosely Darwinian presupposition as human as temporary organism, that we recognize suffering as something other than merely the pain of an animal. To treat bioethics as veterinary ethics is a category mistake of momentous consequence to all of us as doctors and nurses, as patients, and as sufferers. I mean to say, to us as compassionate human beings caring for our fellow human beings ethically. So this, the move of bioethics becomes veterinary ethics when you have this human assumption. I, I, I thought this was just a pro- really profound and a, a, a paragraph here, Dr. Schultz. So thank you for writing it. I, do you, you want to f- speak more of this? Well, no, I just want to say amen to that enthusiastic reading. <laughs> uh, well, sure. So um, this has been a theme for our conversations together as it's been a theme for us over the years, praying and talking and, and working at being faithful pastors to people. Right. So, um, I do want to emphasize that even though I um, didn't feel I could jam in any more words into this paragraph, um, the personal immortality is not a platonic wish, and it doesn't apply just to the soul, but this is the resurrection of the body of which Christ gave us empirical evidence in his own resurrection from the dead that first Easter. Um by the way, that was why I tucked in the Stoic and Epicurean reference. I uh, apologize for my typos showing up all over the place here. Um, but the Stoic and Epicureans, which Paul addressed in Acts 17, were steadfast in their denial to their students and followers of even thinking about the possibility of death, uh, of life after death, because their systems could not bear the, even the possibility that the human being would continue. However, you know, before them, you've got Socrates uh, drank the hemlock in 399 BC. Socrates talking matter-of-factly about a good soul cannot be harmed either in life or in death and talking about the possibilities of continuing existence. Um, I think you could make a point since Hippocrates was roughly a contemporary of Socrates and then think about the Hippocratic Oath 
for physicians throughout most of the history of the West, um, that it's, it's simply assumed that you can't do anything to harm people also in view of the fact that they may well continue forever. Mm. Um, so that, I mean, that's there in Western culture, but even if a person wouldn't believe that, and I really think you should, if you're reading any of the Greek philosophy at all, but um, even if you don't like that and won't, won't listen to it, it remains the case that after the fullness of time, as soon as thinkers in the West get a hold of this biblical stuff about eternity and immortality uh, in Christ and demonstrated in the resurrection of the body, um, this has been a mainstay of Western thought. It shows up in Shakespeare, for goodness sakes, right, with Hamlet's uh, famous speech. So the normal position is to be concerned because of a suspicion or expectation that the human being continues after death. It has only been with the advent of Marx and Freud and, and Nietzsche and company in the middle of the uh, 19th century that this has been doubted in any major way, I think. You, um, you make this argument, which is, uh, which is really something I, I, and I'm trying to get my head around it that, um, uh, because, so the objection will come up here. Okay. Your anthropology of the assumption of human immortality yes. is not valid for bioethics because we're doing things scientifically and that can't be scientifically demonstrated. And your argument against that is going to be on the one hand, because you're doing things scientifically, you are not able to speak ethically. <laughs> so that's your first mistake there. But on the other hand, the incarnation of Jesus actually changes the conversation so that, so that now the, this, this, anth this Christian anthropology can be discussed in a, in a broader way. It has universal implications. And you, and for this, it's the mapping of the ocean analogy, um, which I think also comes from Wittgenstein. It does. Yeah. Take us into that argument, that second, maybe that's, so the first argument, I think we've got that. So the second argument, how the, how the incarnation actually things changes our ethical reflection. Right. So um, we do this once in a while when we're working on timelines and, and history reading and talking and studying, don't we? We divide things into epochs or, or periods of history. Um, certainly, we've got to take Paul very seriously every time we do a timeline. So we first got him saying in Galatians 4, um, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem us under law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. And then that same apostle talks exactly according to that when he's talking to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Athens. That's the Acts 17 thing we mentioned before. Um, and he says, you know, in the past, God overlooked your agnosticism. That's, that's his Greek word there for ignorance. Uh, but, you know, now he has sent, sent Jesus and Jesus has risen from the dead. So the deal is that... Any conversation today or ever since um, the fullness of time that does not talk about Jesus as God and man and further refuses to talk about his dying and rising from the dead, his resurrection, is culpably ignorant. Um, I, you know, 
I was to a um, I was to a commencement service recently at a, a Christian place, and uh, there there were some hymns and some prayers there, which was great. But I, I noticed that in all of the speeches that were given, you know, the welcome speech, the the um, invited speaker, um, uh, and even in the the um, speaker for the students, there was no discussion at all about the incarnation. This is in the week before Christmas at a Christian institution. There was talk about COVID. There was, you know, kind of sort of talk about wisdom without Christ, the wisdom. And then, you know, bless him, the student speaker brought in some Bible passages, but there was no discussion. Can you imagine this? less than a week or about a week before we're going to celebrate this fullness of time stuff. There was no mention to that, that, that audience of, of how many hundreds and hundreds of people about the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus and how these people walking across the stage are immortals. Um, you know, it, it just boggles the mind. So anyhow, um, this, this whole thing is missing. I'm going to say, also in the life of the church and many of her institutions. And this is hamstringing the project of doing ethics. And then, by the way, it comes back to not taking suffering seriously, because why did God become incarnate? To be the suffering servant who mm-hmm. bore our sins, with, paid for them with his wounds, and rose from the dead to guarantee our resurrection because of his suffering for all. Um, so... I may I probably have diverged a little bit from that. No, no, that's well, that's great. But the the epistemological. So I mean, this, this is. Um, yeah. So I join in your lament. Um, I mean, let us pre- preach Christ and Him crucified. I mean, it does not make sense that that the name of Christ would not be found on the lips of Christians at every opportunity to speak publicly. How can but, we pass that up? Right. It, it's just absolutely frustrating but i i, I, I there's like a parallel so the argument that you're making here actually comes back to us uh, uh, it comes against us it's wrongly so th- that science cannot speak of ethics they say no no science can speak of everything christians cannot speak of ethics or of science or of anything in other words it's uh, so so while it's actually true that science is very, very limited in what it can say about what is true and, and especially then what ought to be done, that, that th- it's almost like a jujitsu kind of move that's made against the Christians. Oh, you're a Christian. That means you can't speak of science or you can't speak of truth or you can't speak of – you have to put Jesus and the incarnation in your kind of religious freedom – safe zone over there and make sure it does not affect anything else you say or do, which is false. And the, and the fact of the incarnation makes it even falser (laughs) because when God does come into our flesh, Wittgenstein said that science can't know of God. And and yet if God is born in Bethlehem in the year two BC and everyone, you know, everyone comes to see him and touch him, that then, then something very different is happening now. Right. And how can you not want that? I mean, even if you've got a, uh, an allegedly curious, inquiring scientific mind, how can you not want to get at that? Um, you know, you and I have said before that, uh, of course, the Christian faith is very empirically verifiable. 
it's it's just that usually science has such a narrow view of what counts as experience. They can't seem to handle history, much less the history of of uh, God coming in the flesh. Mm. But the you know I think the real problem here that I was saying before is is not us being censored. It's the self censorship of people in the church. Um, so Jesus says, uh, we were reading Bonhoeffer in, one, in my ethics class last week. Um, Bonhoeffer writing under all of that persecution that he was helping to protect his students and or, or equip his students and his parishioners for. He says, well, look, when Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, he's talking about people who will not talk about Christ when they should. In time of persecution, um, if you don't speak up, you're showing that you're not with him. You're against him. Um, right. And then, so to answer your actual question, it's, it's this boundary issue that, for instance, Wittgenstein sets out so clearly in Tractatus, but we can also see it if we just stop to think. The scientific method is very powerful on what it can address, but it cannot address all of reality. Science is, is the discipline of the is and is not. Ethics is the discipline of ought. We're a little bit alarmed that science apparently can't even recognize that all human thought has an ought and should character to it. But at least in the area of ethics, really should acknowledge that if you're going to do this on the basis of science, you don't have any normativity, as we say. You don't have a norm or a standard. Now, given, bring this all together, given that Jesus, this Lord, who is God incarnate, who suffered, died, rose from the dead, right, and, and did everything that, that he did, um, the fact that he tells us to go and make disciples and to teach them to obey everything we've commanded you means that we have to share Christ as the norm with everybody because he prefaced that whole business by saying all normativity has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what authority means. You, you uh, quote Dr. Marquardt here, and I know you wanted to mention him. We were talking. Uh, this is a, a, a favor of yours. He, he wrote, a, he's a professor of mine too, now waiting for us uh, to meet in glory. Um, but he wrote an explanation of the Simonex problem, which was a debate in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod back in the 60s and 70s about scripture and the divine the, the divine inspiration of the scripture and the truthfulness of the scriptures. Um, and he writes, science has neither room, uh, neither use nor room for privileged authorities or sacrosanct texts. It recognizes only observations, experiments, logical inferences based on them. And reluctantly, whatever axioms or assumptions are necessary to sustain these operations. Uh, now he's, I think speaking well, not negatively of science. He's not insulting science here, but he's just saying, hey, science has its place. And if it if it goes beyond its vocation, then bad things are going to result from that. Or um, another way to put that, to put that, I think, is to say, well, uh, if you want to understand what science is, what it can and can't do, look at the scientific method. In exercising the scientific method, there is positively no room for privileged authorities. The best science teachers that we've had along the way, right, have, have said, well, you know, these laws and so forth are subject to further revisions as we learn more or find out what we 
mistook and that sort of thing, or they have no room either for sacrosanct texts. So um, why not just fess up to that? <laughs> and, you know, if that's the case, if that's the case, then number one, as Marquardt was saying, uh, with all that wisdom that God gave him at such a difficult time, um, then what, what was going on in, in our church body at that time was the effort to impose scientific methodology against scripture by interpreting scripture scientifically, which is, you know, as we know, that's the magisterial use of reason, or it's making reason the teacher of the Holy Ghost, putting science over God's own words. Now, I say, um, I, I think, this is not that discussion, I suppose, but I think that that every day in our church body, maybe Seminex, I think every day, you know, we're, we're working at this. And it certainly is a Seminex time for the culture around us. So um, why, why in God's name is anybody making life and death determinations? Why would we be teaching the kind of bioethics, and it surely can be done better, you would think, but teaching the kind of bioethics that confines itself predominantly to science when science has no room for sacred texts or even any norm or authority. May I just say too, on my philosopher's side, uh, that elimination of normativity automatically, you know, if you say there's no standard, we're just doing the best we can to get by. If you say there's no standard at all, you are not doing Western ethics. So kindly just step away from the table. What you um you suggest, and I, I'm so I just uh, Dr. Schultz, I'm just looking at time here and I'm just trying to think of manage the rest of this conversation. Just to, uh, uh, I, I don't want to miss anything um, that you uh, that that you don't want to miss. I think that this maybe important thing is you, is you suggest that one of the responses that we can have ethically is to bring in the ethics of duty rather than the ethics of utility. So yes. you contrast, you contrast utilitarianism with, um, uh, with, uh, deontolo deontological ethics. Yes. Um, could you maybe in summary kind of contrast that and that brings Kant into the conversation too. Okay. Is it okay to treat this as a tease for another possible? Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 So, um, Immanuel Kant, just to remind everybody, um, is a major, major modern philosopher in the West. So he died right around 1800 in 1804. And I, I think I'm doing okay to say that he is the poster professor for the European Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment project is to do things without Christ and his word on the assumption that that will make European or world cultures better. Immanuel Kant is somebody who certainly knew what he was doing because he was actually raised as a Lutheran pietist. Um, his biographers can nail down the exact edition of Luther's catechism that he used in confirmation class. So when he does or tries to do ethics apart from Christ and his word, um, I take it that Kant knows exactly what he's up to. So in his um, 
categorical imperative, and maybe this is the start of the tease, we see how he carries this out. Now, it does look like a breath of fresh air today in the 21st century, because he has a lot of the biblical and Christ momentum sort of still there, even while he's getting rid of the means of scripture for carrying on that conversation for other people learning what he learned growing up. So his way of doing philosophy is called deontology or duty-driven ethics. And then what I think is very worthwhile is to catch the fact that this is something of the opposite or an antidote to the main ethics that's used in bioethics and truth be told in most hospital decisions. And I think maybe in all political discussions, whenever we get anywhere near ethics today, and that's utilitarianism. Now that ethic um, demands, I think a little bit more explanation because it's both familiar and it's an entire, entirely different um, rejection of Western thought as a matter of fact, that, that traces back not to Immanuel Kant uh, in, the, in his century, the 18th century, but traces back to the 19th century and to Great Britain with uh, Bentham and Mill. You, you suggest, and I think this would be good. In fact, maybe this would be a good place to sort of, uh, to take a, a group of thought because, because Kant is a, as you said, is a, a breath of fresh air compared to the utilitarians, but there's even a, a breath of fresher air that's going to come from Kierkegaard, yeah, who's yeah. going to say, look, you're, Kant, this experiment of trying to have the right conclusions without having the right source is foolish. And you get, get better if you just let Jesus stand as the son of God. And this probably takes us back to the, the, the assertion that you made at the very beginning is all of this has to do with person. In fact, um, we... Hmm, this understanding of the importance of person goes back to the church's reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity. And how can it be that God is father of the son and that the son is God and is also the son of the father. Um, and that these, that God, there is only one God in conversation with himself, father, son, and Holy spirit in this eternal self giving and love and all this sort of stuff, which then informs who we are. Uh, can we, so, so we should probably, that should probably be the next thing we talk about. So, so let's, let's set that for that and, and then maybe make just a couple of conclusions from what we've talked about so far. So science is incapable of making ethical conclusions just by the nature of science. Scientism, because it's science beyond the boundaries of science, science beyond its vocation, claims to be not only the only source of knowledge, but the only source of salvation and therefore the only source of ethics. And the result is the disastrous ethics, what's called bioethics today, of death on demand, of abortion available everywhere, of the understanding of a person as an animal and medicine as veterinary practice, basically. Uh, and that we as Christians have something better not only is it, it's not with medicine, but we, we have, we could do medicine better, but we have something better in the word of God, which gives us Jesus who not only shows us who we are truly, but also gives us the promise of eternal life that'll never end in the resurrection. Is that a, is that a safe summary? I think it's, it's quite marvelous. I would, 
I would also add that it's not a matter of introducing Christ, who he is, and his words from Genesis to Revelation for all people, but it's a matter of recovering that conversation because Western culture was formed in large part by its interaction with Holy Scripture. It is, um, it is not this, this notion of pastoral care or Christian care for those who suffer that is new. It is death on demand that's new. And at the same time, uh, alas, at the same time that Western culture has lost uh, the life, that has lost Jesus the life in the way we live and kill each other today, um, the church, I think, has been failing in her responsibilities here too. Or to bring it to a fine uh, point, I think, you know, pastors like you and me and folks such as your Christian listeners who are, are supporting and praying and encouraging you with all of your important work here and folks at my university throughout our church body, Christians around the world. Um, we have not been doing our duty to Lord or to the people around us in these issues either. Um, so these are our desperate times. Someone told me the other day, they saw a bumper sticker and it said, I hate people, <laughs> but let us contrast that with the good news of Christmas where Jesus looking down on us in our corruption and in our sin and in our guilt and in our animosity and in our rebellion, he says, I love you. And he proves it by being conceived by the Holy spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and nailed to the cross for our eternal life. So that, so that this news of the incarnation and the light that comes into the darkness and that cannot be overcome by the darkness. That's what we celebrate uh, at Christmas. So God be praised for that. Dr. Schultz, thank you so much. This is always wonderful. This is really fantastic. Thank you so much. And th thanks for all those who are uh, listening and watching and you can post up questions below. We'll, we'll come back to those at some point in the future, Lord willing as well. Uh, and thoughts below. Uh, also, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Christmas blessings to all of you. God be praised.